Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, some new polling shows a widening lead in the race for Senate and a definite message to City Hall from Seattle voters. This can be done, okay? It ain't easy, but you know what the pathway is to solve the problem. Go do it. We'll break down some of the numbers. Plus, the January 6th committee has held what could be its final hearing, but their work isn't done. I am offering this resolution that the committee direct the chairman to issue a subpoena for relevant documents and testimony under oath from Donald John Trump in connection with the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. Speaking of securing the vote. Um, I know there's some myths out there saying that we don't check the signatures. That is not true. We'll dispel some of those myths with the Secretary of State. And is there a Biden doctrine? The White House shakes up foreign policy with a new approach to the world. All of that coming up, but we begin with a new poll out this week from Strategies 360 and Como News. And we are fortunate to have pollster and political strategist, as well as the founder of Strategies 360, Ron Dotsauer, joining us now. And you conducted this poll statewide. And now we did we did two separate polls. Two separate polls. There was one statewide poll with a 500 sample, mm-hmm. and we did a City of Seattle-centric poll with 400 sample because we had polled in Seattle last year, so we wanted okay. to look at the comparisons. And so now that things just, have changed. By way of background. Yeah, we'll okay. We'll get to the Seattle poll in just a minute, but statewide, uh, looking at the race for Senate, it looks like Patty Murray... Uh, has extended her lead to about 12 points or so over Republican challenger Tiffany Smiley. That's about what some other polls had had earlier in the summer, Uh, although some polls had it as close as two points. What do you make of these shifting numbers over the uh, course of the last few months? Well, first off, I don't know who did the two-point poll number, but I don't think that's accurate based on our research uh, because it's been pretty consistent. And so she has a 52 to 40 percent margin lead. I would also suggest, though, that even though that's a 12-point lead, I would say that's a soft 12-point as opposed to a hard 12-point. What makes you say that? Because when you look at the internals and you look at the favorable, unfavorable, and you look at job performance, Senator Murray's numbers are not that great. Her favorables are just, you know, I think three, four points above her unfavorables, which is, you elect a better margin than that, and job performance in the same kind of range. So they're not, these are not really good numbers that you want to take to the bank, okay? But this is something that Patty Murray's had in all of her elections. She hasn't polled well at the beginning of the cycle every time, right? But she's had higher favorable numbers. She's had higher ratio numbers than she has this time. And I think that Senator Murray would be the first person to tell you that, if, if she could talk about her internal polling, which she's not <laughs> going to do. But yes, and so, but I, I would, let me just, the caveat on her numbers that seemed to be across the spectrum. The way I'm framing it is that the voters are just grumpy with all politicians mm-hmm. right now. And so they're not willing to treat them very kindly when they give them favorable numbers. And they're much more inclined to give them unfavorable numbers. And that's that's pretty much across the board. As I saw everybody that was polled, um, there was only one politician in the in both the statewide and in the city of Seattle that had like a 14 or 15 percent net positive. And that was the new mayor of Seattle. Here's the other thing to look at the Senate race numbers. And this is the challenge for Tiffany Smiley. 52, 40. 8% don't know. So if she were to receive all 8% of the of those don't knows... She'd still need 4% from she'd Patty She'd still Murray. lose. Yeah. Right. So the only way that she wins is she gets every one of those voters that don't know, and she picks two or three points out of Senator Murray's pocket. That's a tall task. First task to get 
that eight, that whole eight percent, which is unlikely. Now, what's going to happen in about two weeks, maybe three weeks, that number will be cut in half. It'll go from eight, don't know, down to three or four. Okay, and where those go are going to be important. Smiley's going to have to pick those up. So what would she have to do to do that? I mean, you're a strategist. I mean, how would you advise a campaign to pick up eight points, 12 points with just a month to go before the election? It's going to be difficult. And the reason I say that, a lot of it has to do with, um, I mean, geography. She's coming from Tri-Cities. I love Mm Tri-Cities, but she's still coming from Tri-Cities. Not much of a base. I spent most of my career down in southwest Washington. Mm -hmm. Not much of a base there either. So I'm I'm, I'm empathetic to all of that. But not having a, a political base is a challenge. And number two, from what I can tell, she's really on the wrong side of one of the really, really, really important issues in Washington State, and that's the Roe v. Wade, because she has said she is pro-life, mm-hmm. which means, if you interpret that literally, she would support the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. We know from our statewide polling, which is an astounding number, 65% of the voters in Washington State said they opposed the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade as the law of the land. Certainly, Patty Murray is trying to paint Tiffany Smiley as very much pro-life in her ads. But Tiffany Smiley has said, despite her previous statements, she would not support a nationwide abortion ban. So is she kind of wavering on that? I mean, what's, well, what? if, you, if you're pro-life, that, that's, that says it all. All she's saying is she wouldn't vote for a national abortion ban. But what she says, first and foremost, I am pro-life, ergo I support the Supreme Court's decision. That pro-life position is the position of the U.S. Supreme Court that overturned Roe v. Wade. So, yes, is she doing a little bit of a kabuki dance around that? Yes. But the fact is, she is on record very clearly pro-life. So, Senator Murray started hitting her with that issue before anybody knew who, who she was because she saw that as a winning narrative. And I think she's right. When you test all of the voters... In the state of Washington, you get the kind of numbers we're getting on that issue when 31 percent of the Republican women have said very clearly the Roe v. Wade issues is more important than party ID. That's a big deal. Moving on from the Senate to the race for secretary of state. uh, This one really a toss up. And it's the first time that we've really had two unknowns running for this in quite some time. You have Steve Hobbs, who was a former state senator who was nominated to the position after Kim Wyman left for a job with the Biden administration. Mm-hmm. And then you have Julie Anderson in Independent. Unaffiliated, I think, un- is actually the technical uh, term on the ballot. Yes. Yeah, you have the two of them. It's, I mean, it's statistically tied, yes. but then, what is it, roughly a third of voters still haven't decided. Yeah, it's, well, because they're both unknown. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. You know, it's 38, 38, or 39, 39. I'm frankly a little surprised that it's it's that's that what it is. I, I, I forget what Miss Anderson got in the primary. I think it was like 12 percent of the vote that allowed her to get into second place mm-hmm. or something like that because it was a crowded field. Mm-hmm. But right now she's in dead heat with a guy who's quote unquote the appointed incumbent with the Democrat behind his name. It is a challenge. It's always a challenge for an unaffiliated or independent candidate to run for office. But she seems to be running a pretty good race and literally this ga- this race is to be won or lost. The Democrats haven't held this post for decades. I can tell you when. 1964 was when A. Ludlow Kramer, a Seattle City Council member, was elected Secretary of State. They have held the 
Secretary's position, state's position says 1964. So the Republicans have held yes. on to it, but there's also been a very strong tradition. Sam Reed, you also had Kim Wyman. Republicans, yes, but very apolitical. Very good secretaries of state. I know both of them well. I worked with them extremely well. I have nothing but respect for both of them. As a matter of fact, all the way up and down the line, they have put party politics aside, particularly Kim Wyman did during the the big brouhaha of, of 2020. And she wore a very professional hat as the state's highest elected official dealing with elections. Did an amazing job. She held firm. And I have nothing but praise for the job she did. The Republicans have had a long history of doing a very good job as Secretary of State. Sam Reed, because I was a Hundred years ago, I was a county auditor, and a hundred years around that time, Sam Reed became county auditor in Thurston County. He actually came down to Clark County, spent some time with me, to learn about being a county auditor. And he later on went on to become the Secretary of State, and and I've known him for a long time, and he's he's a good man. We've had a really good history in Washington State. Very proud of what we've done with elections. And I know I'm getting a little long-winded on that answer, but <laughs> but that's an important office that people don't yeah. recognize. Well, and, and nationwide, a lot of the, the, the Trump wing of the Republican Party, the 2020 election deniers, are eyeing Secretary of State's offices for yes. the sole reason that they oversee state elections. Yes. And uh, can, I guess, theoretically in some places... Uh, overturn results yeah. or, or or mess with elections, but it doesn't appear to be that way in this state. Not at all. And Julie Anderson seems to be positioning herself, although she's nonpartisan or unaffiliated, positioning herself sort of as that natural successor to Kim Wyman and Sam Reed of being neither Republican nor Democrat. Yep. Without the party label. In terms of how she approaches the office, yes, I think that's a very accurate statement. I don't know a lot about her background. I know that she's been the Pierce County Auditor, so she's she's had some experience being an elections official, which I think is very important if you're going to be the Secretary of State. And almost everybody that's done that previously had had some experience around elections, particularly Sam Reed. And Kim Wyman was the Thurston County Auditor after Sam Reed was the Thurston County Auditor. So there's been that tree there, right? Now, Ron, stay with us. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll take a look at some of those Seattle-specific numbers that are just as shocking when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. We're still joined by political analyst and pollster Ron Donsauer, founder of Strategies 360, who conducted a number of recent surveys. We kind of touched on this. Mayor Bruce Harrell has a net positive in his approval rating, but yet his approval rating is still below 50%. What do you make of that? Well, it means what I just said earlier. They're all grumpy about politicians. But I think it is significant, as you point out, that he has he has the highest net favorable ratings of any of the politicians that we polled statewide or in the city of Seattle. Just so we know, Bruce Harrell's favorability, according to your poll, 44%, unfavorability, 27%. Yeah, that's a 17-point spread. That's um, that's pretty good. But if you're any politician and you see an approval rating of 44%, that doesn't, on the surface, seem that yeah, good. Yeah, except what's more important than is the ratio, than what the actual top line is on fave versus unfave. Yes, you'd like to be, on a vote count, you want to be 50% or above. But fave-unfave numbers are more important on the ratio and the disparity between the two than the actual number on, on the top. So he has that margin. Now, that margin 
can move very quickly away from you. And so to a certain extent, um, the mayor, I think, is still benefiting from a honeymoon period here in the city of Seattle, and how he handles and manages the two top issues in the city of Seattle in the next six to nine months are going to be kind of critical to his administration and to what where those numbers move. And, and they are very clearly homelessness in the city of Seattle is number one, crime is number two. Statewide, crime is number one, and homelessness is number two. But that's a little surprising. It's not about the economy. It's not about the cost of living. It's not about inflation. Those are the top two issues either in Seattle or the state. The other thing that we saw in your poll is that a slight majority of voters said they feel safe, 54%. You know, if they're saying crime and homelessness are the biggest problems, then feeling safe, you'd think, would be a bit lower. But it's the trend that that is disturbing, right? That's correct. You know, before it was 60%. A year ago, felt that they were in a safe position. Now that's dropped, and they feel less safe today than they did a year ago, which is the trend line is not good. And in particular, downtown, unsafe. People, 67%, more than two-thirds say they are unsafe when they're in downtown Seattle. It's interesting. They feel safe in their neighborhoods, but when you ask them if they feel safe in the Soto District or they feel safe around stadiums and so forth, that number just flips. They feel very unsafe in downtown Seattle. They feel safe in their neighborhoods. 81% of the people polled said, I feel safe in my neighborhood. And you couldn't find a majority of people that felt safe in downtown Seattle. So what does that tell you about Seattleites and their views of crime and homelessness and public safety because we've seen the mayor's numbers we've seen these numbers do Mm -hmm. you feel safe do you feel safe in certain neighborhoods i mean what's what overall picture does that paint yeah good question jeff basically what it's saying is i'm gonna stay at home (laughs) if i wander downtown i'm I'm at risk Mm -hmm. and so but therein lies the solution if you're the mayor and you're the city council and you're the police chief where do you go attack the problem? The voters are telling you right now they want a safer downtown. They want a safer Soto district. So give it to them. Okay, this, this can be done. Okay, it ain't easy, but you know what the pathway is to solve the problem. Go do it. And finally, you also did some polling on Seattle's new police chief. And the big takeaway from that is... People really don't know who he is, right? They now. don't have a clue. No, Adrian Diaz, by the way. Yes, it's Adrian Diaz. But if you look, they don't know, and I think sixty-two percent of the people polled didn't know or never heard of him. And so, part of that, he was a temporary police chief for two years. For two yeah, plus for two years. years. But I think if I were him, listen, he is the face of the police department in the city of Seattle. He needs to increase his profile in a very positive way. Um, And I assume that there must be some kind of plan in place for doing that now that he's been given the permanent position. But he needs a a really good PR job. and, uh, you know, he needs, to, he needs to get out there. He needs to increase his profile. He needs to take some leadership roles. All of that will accrue to the benefit of the overall, overall rankings of the police department if he steps up and becomes more of a, a figure in the community. All right, Ron Dotsauer, founder of Strategies 360, pollster, did a poll for Como News. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Always good to talk to you. My, my pleasure, Jeff. Now, we have to take another quick break, but coming up, the final January 6th committee hearing is in the books, and like those before, it, shocking new information was released. You know, you've seen widespread reports of, of Kevin McCarthy and the president having a, basically a swearing conversation. That's when the swearing's meant, because 
the president was basically saying, nah, I, I'm okay with this. When the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Here's Kim Shepard. The ninth and possibly final public hearing of the January 6th committee was a barn burner filled with the sounds of panic from Capitol Hill. Now apparently everybody on the floor is putting on their gas masks to prepare for a breach. I'm trying to get more information. They're putting on their tear gas masks. We need an area for the council members. They're all walking over now through the tunnels. I'm going to call up the effing Secretary of DOD. We have some senators who are still in their hideaways. They need massive personnel now. Can you get the Maryland National Guard to come too? I have something to say, Mr. Secretary. Well, I'm going to call the, the mayor of Washington, D.C. right now and see what uh, other outreach she has. Why don't you get the president to tell them to leave the Capitol, Mr. Attorney General, in your law enforcement responsibility? A public statement, they should all leave. And there was also a lot of new information about what the Secret Service knew before that violent day. ABC's Faith Abube is at the Capitol. And Faith, I think there were so many bombshells. And what was most poignant for you? I mean, there really were. I mean, we went into this thinking this would just be a rehash of some of the old hearings that we've had and, of course, some new information. But we really didn't know the extent of it. And I think the the breaking news, really, the bombshell was the fact that the committee decided to vote on a subpoena of former President Donald Trump. And not only that, they did it at the end. And they unanimously agreed, all nine of them agreed that they needed to subpoena the former president. The clerk will report the vote. Mr. Chairman, on this vote, there are nine ayes and zero noes. The resolution is agreed to. They even made uh, made sure to tell the public that this is a serious and an extraordinary move that they were making. But it's not unprecedented to subpoena a former president. However, it's, it is extraordinary. They have been at this for four months now. They've looked over hundreds of thousands of documents. They've made criminal referrals for multiple individuals to the DOJ. They've conducted hundreds of interviews. And a lot of these interviews were from people within Trump's own orbit, his own allies, his own family members, his loyal aides, his staffers, cabinet members, people from the highest level of the Trump administration all sat down to talk to this committee. They've gotten a lot of information, but they said, you know, this is not complete until we actually hear from the former president. We want to hear from him. The American people deserve answers. And so that is why they went ahead and decided to subpoena the former president. They believe that the plan to try to overturn the election results, which led to the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. They believe it was premeditated, it was preplanned, and that the former president had a hand in it all along, even before the first votes were cast on Election Day. Yeah, all the testimony from uh, the Secret Service information, the documents, text messages, emails they got from the Secret Service were really interesting. Are those things that we had not heard or seen before? We had heard some of it in, in the public sphere, but, you know, they went into a lot of detail and they showed a lot of evidence today. You know, there, there was intelligence that we, we learned that the Secret Service was aware in some way, shape or form that there were people who were coming to Washington who were armed, who were coming to the rally, who were armed. They knew days before, even on the day of the rally, they knew that some of um, uh, the Trump supporters 
in the mob were planning to storm the Capitol. They knew about the threats. There were tips coming into the FBI. The FBI was forwarding some of these tips to the Secret Service. One of them actually said, quote, their plan is to literally kill people. Please, please take this tip seriously and investigate the matter. They think that they will have a large enough group to march into D.C. armed and will outnumber the police so they can't be stopped. So this was a tip that was forwarded to the Secret Service. But, of course, we know how all uh, that day played out. And some of the officers were literally talking over their radios, talking about how afraid they were. And they were concerned about the weapons they were seeing in the crowd. Um, And so we had heard some of that before, but they were able to weave it into this narrative that uh, they were trying to present today, that the former president, again, was part of what set in motion what led to the Capitol attacks, because he really tried to hold on to power illegally. And not only that, he wanted to be at the Capitol. He was fighting with Secret Service to bring him to the Capitol as this was unfolding. And, of course, his advisor stepped in and he wasn't able to come. But he went to the White House and watched, and according to the committee, watched for 187 minutes on TV while this was unfolding. We saw video of Nancy Pelosi and other members of Congress huddled together in a secure location on the Capitol grounds while the violence was going on, basically begging for someone in power, the president, someone at the DOJ, the D.C. mayor, someone needed to step in and call off the mob. And so we saw all of that play out in real time. And and some of it was just very chilling. Yeah. One of the voices that we heard was actually Washington State Republican Jamie Herrera Butler, who said that during that siege, when the House Minority Leader called then President Trump and asked him to call off that crowd, he refused. You know, you've seen widespread reports of of Kevin McCarthy and the president having basically a swearing conversation. That's when the swearing meant, because the president was basically saying, no, I'm okay with this. What is the committee's response to that testimony in particular, that the president was called but decided Decided not to take action. I, I think at the end of the day, that is why, and a part of why I should say, um, they want to hear from the former president. They believe that the public deserves some answers. They have a lot of questions for him. The committee has been able to get the account of what happened that day from a lot of people close to Trump, who were near Trump, who were next to Trump, who knew about the plan, but they haven't been able to hear directly from him. And so that is why they want to issue subpoena. Uh, But the former president hasn't responded yet as to what he plans to do, but he has a lot of options. He can contest the subpoena. He could plead the fifth. He could testify, show up in front of the committee and testify and enjoy the limelight. A lot of people watch these hearings. He could enjoy it, or he could actually flat out refuse to come altogether. And then It could be referred to the full house to hold him in contempt of Congress. And that is something the DOJ could potentially take up as well. So there are a lot of options here for the former president. Of course, the committee is making it clear that they want to hear from him in order to what they say protect the republic because they believe that the former president still presents a danger to U.S. democracy. Now, the Republican leadership, of course, has chosen not to take part in these hearings. I'm curious, though, are they responding to what we heard today? I haven't heard anything from them at this hour, but that's not to say that they're not going to respond at some point, because uh, as soon as our reporter gets close to them, we will be asking them questions about what they think about some of the revelations that were made today. Uh, But also, Uh, As you know, we're just about three weeks now from the midterm elections. Uh, This is something that could drag on well beyond that. And so uh, who actually comes into power um, after the midterm elections, whether it's Republicans, whether it's Democrats, will determine on how long this investigation by the committee continues. And so will the former president try to drag it out till after the 
uh, midterm elections to see what happens, whether his party wins and they and, you know, disassemble this committee, or uh, w- will this move along quickly and could we get a, a final report before the end of the year or be- even before the midterm elections? A lot of questions still remain to be answered. Yeah, lots of pins and needles were on ABC's Faith Abube from Capitol Hill on the Northwest Newsline. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, a chat with the Secretary of State about how Washington is securing next month's elections when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelo. We're just a couple of weeks away from the midterm elections, and people have already started receiving their voters' pamphlets, and the ballots will be going out this coming week. Joining me now is Secretary of State Steve Hobbs, who oversees elections here in Washington State. He took over for Kim Wyman, who resigned to take a job with the Biden administration. And uh, first off, Secretary Hobbs, uh, this is your first election as uh, Secretary of State. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it's a bit of big learning process for you as well well actually jeff uh, I've, I've got two special elections under my belt in a statewide primary so yeah. this is kind of my fourth election now so yeah so as secretary so what do we have to know about this particular election the uh, midterms coming up well first of all what's great about washington state is and i think you mentioned it that you'll be getting your ballot in the mail uh, which uh, you should have around the 21st of October. Some of you received it uh, slightly earlier. Uh, some of you, very few of you, uh, if you're a kind of an overseas voter or a military voter, received it a lot earlier. And here's the great thing. You get basically 18 days, the convenience of your own home to figure out who you want to vote for. And, um, you know, using that voters pamphlet that you should have gotten already, if not contact your county auditor, or you can just go online at VoteWA. Um, gov and see the digital version and that's what's great here so um that's what you should be doing now the main thing jeff is uh you, you still got to turn in your ballot right <laughs> so after you fill it out you know drop it in the mailbox or put it in a drop box uh or if you want to drive all the way to your county auditor to, and say hi to them and give it to them you can certainly do that if you want to uh but the main thing is you have to have it in before tuesday 8 p.m on november the 8th so that is important and the problem my fear is jeff is that you have some folks who will say well i'm going to drop it in the mailbox on that day but remember if your postal worker shows up let's say at 3 p.m to pick up your mail then you drop it off at 4 p.m guess what um probably won't be postmarked that day. And what if someone needs assistance? For example, they're blind or may have some other disability. Yeah. So what's great about this state, too, is um, you can have a loved one uh, drop it off. In fact, that happens here. And in my own household, I'll, I'll say, hey, I'm going downtown. Does anyone want me to drop off their uh, their ballot? You know, you know, my own household. So my wife and my kids. Also, if you have an elderly member of the family or uh, a family member that uh, might have health problems or disability or a friend that has a disability, then you can certainly 
take their ballot. What I, I do recommend to the folks out there, don't give your ballot to a stranger. <laughs> you know, uh, you, you should know who you're giving your ballot to. Uh, but yeah, that, it's very convenient that you can do this. Uh, I know here in Washington State, and in particular in King County, there's been some concern over Dropbox surveillance. You know, this is a, a, a lot of people have been upset over the 2020 election and don't believe the, the security of the election. Uh, what does your office's role have in securing those ballot drop boxes, or is that just the the role of the county auditors? That's the role of the county auditors uh, in the 39 counties, and they do an excellent job of uh, securing those ballots. Uh, We have a very secure system in the state of Washington, and here's a great thing is you can track your vote. So if you fear that your vote has not been uh, recorded or received, you you just go to votewall.gov. You can can check the tracking of it. uh, to see where it is in the system, you can contact your county auditor. You can just call them up too. That that's another way to do it. Um, yeah, that, let's hope that there's not you know third party surveillance on a Dropbox. Uh, that's not uh, that's kind of intimidating for some folks uh, to go up to a Dropbox knowing someone is surveilling you and they're not you know they're not a trusted source. So how secure are Washington's elections? Oh, Jeff, they they are very secure. Uh for for one, like I said, you can track your ballot here by going to votewa.gov. Um every signature is checked. Um I know there's some myths out there saying that we don't check the signatures. That is not true. The other thing is the transparency of the system. If you if you don't believe me and and I'm sure there there are people out there that don't believe me, don't d- don't take it from me then. Go to your county auditor, go to your election center and view the process. They will let you in. They will let you see the ballots come in. Uh, you can, you know, there's a tabulation system there. There are audits that happen. Uh, there's logic tests, the inaccuracy tests, uh, tests that are done on the actual tabulation system. Uh, so it's all very secure, very accessible, and very transparent. So how much, since you have taken over for Kim Wyman, have you had to deal with these accusations of voter fraud and, and, and malfeasance in elections? Well, you know, from the very beginning, and not not just as Secretary of State, but, you know, when I was a state senator before I, I took this job. So it's, it's, it's been out there, obviously, uh, a lot more <laughs> since uh, uh, 2020. Um, but one thing, Jeff, that kind of concerns me too is not just the the misinformation that's out there, and is the um, the threats to our our elections through cyber threat and through larger misinformation campaigns. We had to deal with three misinformation campaigns. Uh, one was the Dropbox that you had just mentioned. Another is targeting uh, a piece of cyber uh, protection uh, that was on there, trying to tie this device to. <laughs> Uh, George Soros and people believed it and pressured uh, auditors to remove this device. Um, and then, of course, I, I think you have probably reported on the uh, voter research project where people are going door to door to to find so-called. And I'm using you know I'm using quotes here, air quotes is like uh, ghost voters, which there's there's no ghost voters. And then the cyber threat that we had received from the U.S. Cyber Command about uh, Russian IP addresses. So. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's been uh, nonstop here, but uh, we've been doing our part to get the word out. Uh, a lo- you know, we have over the years have told people, hey, don't don't forget to vote, and that's a good thing. But what we haven't done is told people about what happens to your ballot as it's going through the process, which is why we've launched the Vote with Confidence campaign, and you'll be seeing that on and hearing about it on the radio and the TV. Heck, Jeff, when you when you go to the gas station and um, put gas in your car and some of these 
these pumps have the, the you know the screens on it mm-hmm. with the ads yeah. you you'll probably you might even see it there <laughs> all right secretary of state steve hobbs thank you so much for your time and insight thank you jeff we have to take another break but when we come back creating the biden doctrine the administration's new approach to foreign policy when the northwest politicast continues in just a moment Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Well, this past week, the White House rolled out its official national security strategy, an overarching summary of how it views the United States' approach to the world. And there are some significant changes. Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. And this is uh, really a major statement of the foreign policy of the Biden administration. So what is unique here? What is different? Well, what's what's different is that the focus is more on China than any other any other part of the strategy. I mean, you, you, you look at these defense um, posture strategies and it's the United States looks at the world and says, uh, like in Star Trek, where do we put the force field on? <laughs> Which way do we direct this thing? <laughs> and, uh, you know, for the longest time, it's been against Russia and uh, threats from the Middle East and from terrorists over there. But, uh, the, you know, the president's taking the uh, the force field away from, from Spock and directing it over toward China right now because that, at least his administration thinks that that is the biggest threat that we face there. It doesn't mean that Russia is any less of a threat. It's certainly a threat to Europe but not as much of a threat to us, at least militarily. Perhaps with cyber attacks, yes, but not necessarily militarily. So it's it, it's really something that they were going to come out with and put out about seven or eight months ago, and then the war happened with, uh, with uh, Ukraine, so they kind of delayed this. But that's where their, their thinking is right now, and which is why you see so much activity. We, we see many uh, U.S. warships and military drills with with uh, South Korea. In fact, South Korea has even uh, asked for uh, a rethinking of, gee, maybe we should put some of those tactical nuclear weapons in its backyard just in case uh, North Korea gets out of control. So a lot of things are changing over there. And that's where at least this administration thinks that the energy and the attention should be focused. Quite the change over the last 20 years, as you say, uh, even back to the Cold War, where it was the U.S. versus Russia for so long, then uh, or U.S. versus Soviet Union, I should say, then the Soviet Union collapsed, and then the United States was the only superpower left. But then China has really come on strong in the last couple of decades. It has, and it's not just here. You know, a lot of folks derided uh, President Trump for his space force that he created. But in fact, that is becoming a real threat uh, in terms of uh, strategic uh, placement of weapons and satellites. And uh, China, certainly Russia, is looking to militarize space, something that we had hoped would never happen, but it's slowly happening that way. So we're not just looking at land-based, sea-based threats. We're looking at intergalactic threats these days. So what does this say about the Biden policy. Is there a Biden doctrine when it comes to foreign policy? If there is, I don't know that he's really articulated it. This is more of a, let's get all our intelligence agencies together. Let's get all our defense people there. They all sit and put their noggins together. They they have analysts look through all the documents and say, okay, uh, this seems to be the way the wind's blowing. It's, it's, it's basically putting a giant government finger in the air and waiting for the wind to blow and see which way it, 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 it's hitting you. And right now, those winds are blowing from the Far East, uh, from North Korea, from China. 
where and certainly China seems to be a stronger military power than Russia at this point. We've seen Russian troops failing, trying to get take over one small country that up until recently wasn't particularly well armed. And if it wasn't for the United States and uh, uh, NATO countries, it would not be. Uh, which is why Vladimir Putin thought he could roll his tanks and his troops in there and in a matter of days take over the country, just as he did in Crimea and other places. You mentioned the war in Ukraine, and obviously the threat from Vladimir Putin to use nuclear warheads is of grave concern. We're also learning that the White House and the Pentagon have contingency plans uh, about this in, in their foreign policy. Well, there's always contingency plans. They just don't seem to share them with us. In fact, President Biden had an interview with CNN last night. Uh, it was pressed repeatedly on, well, okay, what are you going to do if, if Russia fires a nuclear weapon? And Joe Biden's response was, I'll let you know when it happens. Uh, it's not one of these things that he wants to talk about publicly. In fact, it, you know, they have these drills. They have these desktop drills. This stuff happens within the government all the time. We are just not, as a public, privy to it. Uh, and it's deadly serious uh, work. I actually participated in one. Uh, as a journalist years ago where they asked journalists to and you know we had to be sworn to secrecy on exactly what happened in it but you know some of these terrible scenarios happened and we were supposed to pressure the government officials to say okay you know with real questions you know we're acting as if this was really happening but it was mostly to help the government prepare for okay exactly what happens if this does happen and it was pretty terrifying being on the inside of that, watching that. And now those drills seem to be all that more important with the threats from Russia and from China. ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C., thank you so much. Thanks. And that'll do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Lifebeat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Schwartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Podula. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.